Well, there's all kinds of perspectives on love out there, isn't there? All kinds of perspectives. Here's three of them. Three quotes about love. See if you can guess who says each one. Well, the first quote goes like this. We're all a little weird and life's a little weird. And when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with ours, we join up with them and fall in mutual weirdness and call it love. Does anyone know who that is? Feel free to shout it out if you do. Anyone? No. I didn't either. It's Dr. Seuss. Yeah. The second love quote. Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Anyone know that one? No. That's just a random person on Facebook. I... <laughs> some random person that made a comment on some random article that I looked up. Well, the last quote. I reckon some of you might know this one. Love, it will not betray you, dismay or enslave you. It will set you free. Someone's got to know that one. Anyone? Oh, okay. Mumford and Sons, that's right. Mumford and Sons, a band, yep. There you go. Three different perspectives on love. Dr. Seuss links love with weirdness. The random person on Facebook links love with feelings. And Mumford and Sons link love with freedom. There's no consensus on love. People think about it in all kinds of different ways. Love can just end up being whatever you decide you want it to be. That's how our world thinks about love. Well, the book of Deuteronomy calls us all to love. To love God and to love others. We're given God's perspective on love. The true perspective. It's total devotion. Wholehearted commitment. Undivided loyalty. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. But it sounds like a big ask, doesn't it? How do we even begin to love like this? How do we even start in the first place? Well, what we need to do, we need to see it for what it is, and that is a response. Love for God is in response to the totally devoted God. Total devotion to Him is in response to the one who has been totally devoted to us. It's with God himself then that we start our three weeks in Deuteronomy. We're focusing on him this morning and his total devotion. Now, by diving into this book, we enter a nation's story, a nation that God has chosen to love. Here are a people standing on the edge of the land that they were promised. It's been a long and painful journey to get to this point, but the possibility of life in the land with their God is held out to them. They'll need to be careful though. When God made a covenant with them, they committed themselves to him. They committed themselves to love him and to love him totally, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly, not partially, but completely. For Israel, this commitment requires obedience to God's law given to them by their leader, Moses. If they obey, they'll enjoy life in the land. If they disobey, they will be cursed and be driven away from the land. 
There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? A lot at stake for this nation. And Moses wants to inspire them to obey. He wants to inspire them to be totally devoted to God in everything. But interestingly, he doesn't do it by telling them to look deep within themselves and to find their inner strength or something like that. No, his motivational strategy, if you like, is to show them how God has been totally devoted to them. So in his first speech, I know the video said there was one big speech, but I reckon there's three, so we'll just go with that. Uh, In his first speech, he highlights God's love. God's love as he gives them this rerun of their history. God's love has got them through thick and thin. God's love has brought them to this present moment. God's love has continued despite their unworthiness, despite their ungratefulness, despite their buff-headedness, despite their rebellion. And the climax comes in the verses we're looking at this morning, verses 32 to 40. A history lesson, a God lesson, and a call to respond to the lessons. Important lessons for Israel and important lessons for us here this morning. Well, the history lesson begins by Moses putting out a national challenge, a challenge to dig into the past and to see whether anything compares to their experience of their God. I'll read from verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Moses is saying, go ahead and do the research. See if you can find an experience that ranks alongside yours from any source and from any time in history. Now, most of us have done some extensive research at one point or another in our lives for a school assignment, a uni assignment, or for a work presentation that you might have to give. When you're moving house or moving to a new area, when you're buying a house. But there's no way you could have researched this extensively. Go back to the beginning when God created humanity. Go all over the world looking for your answers. Search every possible source. Open every record. Look in every library. Browse every web page. Leave no stone unturned. No file unopened. No witness overlooked. Moses isn't asking them to do a quick Wikipedia search. He's calling them to conduct a Royal Commission on world history. That's kind of what he's doing here. Well, what stands behind Moses' invitation to engage in this exhaustive research? What's the truth that stands behind it? It's the truth that Israel's experience of Yahweh their God is unparalleled. Unparalleled. Nothing compares. 
This is the God who invaded Egypt. This is the God who rescued them from slavery right under Pharaoh's nose. In an awesome display of power, he performs daring acts and does the spectacular for all to see. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? His mighty power cries out to them that their experience is unheard of anywhere or any time. Nothing compares. That is the point that stands behind this challenge. Nothing compares. But why would God do all this for Israel? A small and unimportant nation, seemingly, under a powerful and mighty nation, a large nation like Egypt? Well, the answer is in verse 37, where Moses declares to Israel, because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. God acts for Israel out of love. He doesn't rescue them because of anything they've done. He rescues them because of his love. And his love is not primarily an emotion. Not primarily an emotion. It's not a feeling that can be there one minute and gone the next. At a wedding, the bride and the groom promise to love one another. You know how it goes. I promise to love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Well, at one wedding I heard about, the bride and groom basically got up and said, I promise to stay with you while ever our love remains alive. While ever that feeling of love was there, they would stay married. But if that feeling faded, there would be no point sticking around. God's love is not a feeling that fades. It's more like the traditional wedding vows. No, God's love means his total devotion. God's love is loyal. God's love is wholehearted commitment. Wholehearted commitment to his people, the people that he chose. Commitment based on covenant promises he made back in the day to Abraham. He said, you and your descendants are mine. I will give you land and through you all people will be blessed. You see, by acting for Israel in saving them from the Egyptians, God isn't just thinking about Israel. Do you see how important this is? Israel was not the centre of the universe. Israel is not the centre of the universe. God was thinking about all people, about all people who would be blessed through Israel. God was thinking about us, all of those whom he'd chosen to be his in Christ. We sit here today as those blessed in Christ because of this love here in Deuteronomy. We experience God's love in Jesus because of what he has done in ancient history. Because of his loyalty to his people back then. Because of his faithfulness to the promise he made back then in making us descendants of Abraham. 
If you think the Old Testament doesn't really matter and isn't relevant, think again. This is our history. God's love extends beyond one nation. It reaches beyond one time and space. That's the history lesson. Nothing compares to God's love experienced by his people. Now, what does Israel's unparalleled experience of God teach them? It teaches them who they're dealing with. This is the God lesson. God's love for his people sets him apart from anyone or anything else. It's there in verse 35. You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. God rescued his people to reveal to them who he is. To reveal to them that he is the only God, the true God. Now, have we got any Coldplay fans here? Any Coldplay fans? Yeah, a couple. Well, Coldplay are unique, or at least they used to be before everyone copied them. The thing that sets them apart from any other band is their distinctive sound. But even Coldplay, despite their greatness and despite their uniqueness, if you like, are still a band. They are one of many bands. But God is not one of many gods. God's uniqueness is that he's in a class of his own. Now, the so-called gods around Israel acted for themselves. The notion of love is virtually absent from the vocabulary of divine human relationships in the ancient world. The idea that a god would rescue a people out of love, it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable. The God of Israel's love sets him apart from the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel at the time. It's a love that reveals he's the true God, the only God. The text doesn't say he has done these things so that you might know that he is a God. It says he has done these things that you might know that he is God, that he is the God. Israel's God is the only one deserving of the title. God's love for Israel reveals to them who they're dealing with. It reveals who their fortunes are tied to. It reveals who they've entered into this commitment relationship with. It reveals who they are to devote themselves to, who they are to give themselves to in obedience. So as they stand on the edge of the promised land, poised to enter, as they look forward to a new future, it's super important super important that they recognise who it is they're dealing with. And you see the urgency in verse 39 when Moses says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day, this day, that the Lord is God in heaven and on the earth below. There is no other. It's too important to gloss over because taking to heart what God has done Taking to heart what God has done in his love and who he is as the one true God will produce a national response. What will this response be? Love for their God. Total devotion to him, expressed by 
joyfully obeying his law in the land he is giving them. Moses is calling for this response. Having recounted the Lord's spectacular power and love, joyful obedience is the appropriate response. It's the only response that can be made. You can feel Moses' passion here, can't you? You can see how deeply he cares about how his audience responds. Their future in the land depends on it. His aim is to secure Israel's love for God. His purpose is to inspire loyalty to him. He will go on in chapter 6 to show them what total devotion to God looks like. It's summed up in these famous words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was Israel's pledge to Yahweh their God who intervenes in history on their behalf. This was their pledge. Their pledge to obey. Wholehearted and full-bodied love. Obedience in every sphere of human existence without reservation or qualification. And this commitment was to permeate throughout all of life. No part of life was not to be touched by this God. It was a personal matter. Inward obedience is stressed. It was a family matter. The commandments must be taught to the next generation, not simply by enforcing them as law code, but by making them the fabric of life and conversation. It was a public matter. Inward obedience must be in harmony with outward observance. There must not be a mismatch. And this is the kind of commitment that God calls us all to. Total commitment. Love for him in every area of our lives, in every place and in every moment. You might give God your Sunday, but what about the rest of the week? You might love God at youth group, but what about at school? You might do regular devotions or quiet times, but is a love for God and his ways stitched into the fabric of your home lives and in your conversations? All of us fail, don't we? We all fail to love God totally. All of us struggle. All of us struggle to remain wholeheartedly committed to him. If we're honest with ourselves, we recognise this. If we're going to be people who are totally devoted in our love for God, we must be clear on where this response comes from. It comes from acknowledging what God has done. It comes from recognising what God has done in his love and who he is as the one true God. We too, this morning, need to take to heart these lessons. These aren't just ancient lessons. These aren't just ancient lessons. They matter for us. I reckon these words are some of the most profound and exhilarating words in the Bible. That said, though, whatever I preach on that week, it tends, I tend to think the same thing. But here, what we've seen... What we've seen here in these words, in this part of Deuteronomy, is who God is by the way he acts. 
And God is the same today as he was back then. What God did in rescuing this nation of slaves helps us to take to heart what God has done to rescue us as sinners. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see an even greater demonstration of power where he proves that he is the one true God. If the exodus for Israel was the founding event of their history, then for us, Jesus' death and resurrection is the founding event of our history. If God's rescue of the Israelites from the Egyptians demanded a tremendous act of God's power, then how much more our rescue from sin and its consequences? This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. As the one who demonstrates that he alone is God, there is no other. The love that we see in Deuteronomy is the same love that we see in Jesus. A love that is not primarily an emotion, but an action. God doesn't give us roses or write a soppy love song for us. God acts for us by giving us Jesus, his one and only son. Now that's wholehearted commitment, right? That's total devotion. If we're going to be people who are totally devoted to God in love for him, if we're going to understand what it means and looks like to love God and to love others, we have to know his love for us. It has to imprint itself on our hearts. And knowing this love, how can we respond in any other way but in total devotion to him? For he has been totally devoted to us. Well, this passage began with Moses setting Israel a challenge. Let me finish by setting you a challenge. Go ahead and do your research. And see if you can find a love greater than Christ's love on the cross for sinners like you. Ask the question, does anything compare to this? Has anything like this ever happened? Has anyone imagined a story like this? Who else has invaded this lost world and rescued a people for himself? Is there a greater deed in history than Jesus giving his life for us? Is there a more spectacular display of power than his resurrection from the dead?